Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast circuit. This is Benjamin Boyce, your host, and today's guest is Helen Joyce, who is the Economist's financial editor, but is currently on sabbatical to write a book about gender identity ideology. This woman wears many a hat and is thoroughly rational in her thinking, and it was great to speak to her. We speak about the transgender axiomatic principles and where she disagrees with those. And by transgender, I mean a a specific trans women are women statement that informs an entire body of thought, or at least thought policing. This conversation also regards journalism and her thoughts on, you know, discourse writ large and what is the responsibility of the journalist and what are the problems with journalism as it is right now and what are some of the solutions to those problems. This is like speaking with a mentor and a professor at the same time. It was a great informative conversation for me and I know it's going to be thoroughly enjoyable for you. So let's get out of the way. And here's Helen Joyce. Does that work? Okay. <laughs> so what's been going wrong? Uh, I went to this Megan Murphy event. You yeah. went to an event too. Um, I and did, I... but ours was so different from yours. Ours was absolutely the most inspiring thing ever. It was just amazing. Nearly a thousand women, few blokes, everybody going, oh my God, I know you from Twitter. It's so lovely oh, really? to meet you. And UCL, which is where I did my own PhD, uh, you know, advertised it weeks in advance, said exactly where it was. Uh, you know, they had a little protest. The little girls had their banners. They were yeah. saying things like, trans rights, be nice, trans rights, be nice. And I don't know if you've seen this beautiful picture of Leanne, this very butch lesbian from Get the L out in front of them, just doing like yeah. this at them. I saw your pictures. They, all oh. the, I've never seen so many happy protesters. It was. So, they were very happy. I think that they'd probably been told to behave themselves after previous protests. I mean, I don't mean that those girls wouldn't have. I just mean that um, there was a protest during the Labour Party conference back last year, and the guys had masks and they were spitting at people and slapping people on the head and shouting, you know, very socialised insults. And then they they were banging on the windows and doors the whole way through, and it actually played very badly. Yeah. So I think that these kids have been told, don't do that. We should look like the good girls and good guys. Yeah. And it, then it, those, big, those bigots will look terrible and you can show them up. And, yeah, And then exactly. we're just a bunch of middle-aged women going, oh, it's so nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> <Each other>. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it, it seemed like from the photos that they were mostly female protesters. Yeah, they were. There were a few blokes, um, but they were sort of back. And again... Well, I mean, I don't know. It was actually apparently some women's student group who'd organized it. So maybe that's the way it worked out. But I also think that may have been a strategic, you know, don't get a load of blokes to turn up and shout cunt at women old enough to be their mothers. Yeah, I've been going through, I'm trying to assemble an episode that will get me in trouble with everyone. You know, it's the right way to do it um, about the Megan Murphy event. And there was a event beforehand and then a protest and then their wolf event, the women's liberation event. The protest itself, 
is where all the raucous, uh, you know, the clickbaity yeah. material is. Um, there was at least one a, a battery. Uh, yes, I saw the woman with the pink hat. Yeah, the doughy, yeah. doughy dude pushing the yeah. middle-aged woman. And yeah. uh, so, I, but there was a bunch of speakers that were talking about the wolf event as a hate group. And yeah. they were uh, they they had this description of them as the other, as the evil people mm-hmm. that we need to mm-hmm. exclude mm-hmm. from our city because our city's one of inclusion. And then when they went to organize their protest and they gave a little speech about security, they they spoke about you know where to walk and how to avoid the police, but there was no discussion about how we should be on our best behavior, how we should not be violent to these people who are literally trying to inflict violence on us or justify the violence against us. So it's set yeah. the conditions for bad behavior. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. This was very well done. Out. And um, I mean, all kudos to UCL because there was an open letter saying, you know, this will trash your reputation and these people are a hate group and all of that. And they just seem to have let that flow over them. And, mm-hmm. you know, 900 women think that they're very cool. So <laughs> <laughs> and what, was we the, our... what was the content of that? Oh, um, so it was a full day event and there were a couple of plenaries at the beginning and end. And so Maya Forstatter spoke about her case. Uh, Julie Bindel talked about the attempts to silence her. Um, but actually, it wasn't just it wasn't about trans issues particularly. It was about, you know, violence against women, um, women's development needs, um, domestic violence, that sort of thing. And then it was a lot of workshops. So I was actually running a workshop. <clears throat> that meant I couldn't go to any of the other ones. There were 30 something like that anyway and it was things like you know domestic violence or um coming out as lesbian or you know real wide range of women of the law yeah what was your uh workshop in my mind it was why is the media so shit on gender issues but i didn't <laughs> use the word shit in the, in the conference <laughs> descriptions why do we report on women's issues so badly okay you know well, well, why is the media so shit with gender <laughs> issues <laughs> well it took me about 20 minutes. No, myself and a colleague, Andrea, from The Economist did it, and I'm going to be writing it up, so you okay. will find out in more detail. Oh, okay. Okay. So you don't yeah. want to answer that here? You don't want to inform us? <laughs> I mean, I can do. Well, you're part of the media. Yeah. Have you been? I mean, For I, what? How long? Oh, I started... So I started in 2005 at The Economist, and before that I was quite specialist. Um, so I don't know if you know, um, I was actually an academic, so I have a PhD in mathematics, and then I did various postdocs in maths. Uh, and then I moved from that into doing public understanding of mathematics. Okay. And I worked with a project that worked with schools, and then I started editing a magazine about mathematics, and then I started editing a magazine about statistics, and then The Economist advertised right. for someone to write about education. Interesting. So, yeah. So I did education for them, then I was in Brazil as the Brazil correspondent, then I was the international editor, and now I'm the finance editor. So. Wow, that's kind of a cool... <laughs> Well, it's an awesome pedigree, but it, that's a nice yeah, fun progression. Things. Yeah, a lot of different things, yeah. And then you landed in this other discussion. Yeah, that happened when I was doing the international job. So the international section of The Economist, it's not the foreign editor. It's a specific section, and it does uh, a different thing each week, like a, a theme that's international, you know, cross-border. I've very varied, so it could be like sports doping or weapons control or – and then in one – fateful issue the editor had sat down beside me at lunch and said why do my kids keep coming home and saying such and such is trans and i went oh i've no idea and here i am three years later finding it very hard to think about anything else and writing oh, a book yeah. about it okay 
Yeah. So you're right now you're on kind of sabbatical to focus on That's this right. book. Yeah. Yeah. Because and the finance editor job is obviously a uh, pretty full-time job. It's very yeah. hard to think about other things. Yeah. What, what do you think is so appealing to you? And I guess the, the broader question was not just, is not just why is the trans discussion appealing to you, but why do you think it's a hot button topic or why do you think it's an important issue? So I think, I think everybody has their reason why it's important to them. And I think mine is a slightly unusual one. Like people will generally say that they were peak transed by something. And often they'll say it's that they saw something about sport or something about kids or it was something about, you know, male rapists in women's prisons. For me, it was quite different. It was really, I guess, because of my background in mathematics, that something bothered me about it right from the beginning, which was that there was a circular definition at its heart. So... This thing of like trans women are women full stop, I, you know, I was totally willing to accept it. I, I didn't come into this thinking, you know, trans women aren't women or I don't believe in gender identity. I have no arguments with calling myself cis or anything like that. And, um, but, but it bothered me that we were saying, you know, a woman is anyone who says they're a woman because that's a circular definition. In other words, it's not a definition, in fact. So, I mean, if you make up a word, if you make up a, you know, bloob is a word and you say a bloob is anything that says it's a bloob. Okay. Well, I don't know what a bloob is. Yeah. It's not a definition. You can't define words in terms of themselves. Or in terms of the act of defining, of being defined. So, well, I mean, there are utterances that are, um, that, that make a thing happen. Like when you say, I thee wed, yeah. you make yourself married. But you can't define what something is by just saying it's itself. So even if it wasn't about saying that you are, like even if it was just... You know, a woman is anyone who feels like a woman or a woman is anyone who says they're a woman. That, that doesn't work. You have to know what a woman is. And okay. people don't notice this because they do actually know what a woman is. So when someone says, I feel like a woman, they don't stop and think, well, what's a woman? They know what a woman is. And they know that this person is saying, I'm one of the sorts of humans, broadly speaking, who's more like this group than that group, even though I look like I'm that group. Okay. So it doesn't. So, so people don't notice they're doing it. And we all know what somebody means when they say, I feel like a woman. I mean, it doesn't make much sense, but we do know. But you can't put that into law. You can't put a circular definition into law. Mm -hmm. Because who is a woman and who is a man actually does matter for lots of things in law. Mm -hmm. So it took me a long time to articulate this to myself because I kept thinking I'm missing something. And so I ended up writing this article rather than commissioning it because a series of sort of strange things happened along the way. And each of those strange things like kept, kept putting up red flags, like people I thought were very sensible were doing very strange things, like refusing to speak to me and saying it was you know, only a Nazi would ask. Or um, you know, colleagues started writing me little notes saying things like, um, well, it's impossible to define what a woman is. And I'm like, well, no, it's really not. <laughs> it's quite easy, actually. Um, or, you know, sex is a spectrum or, um, yeah. you know, they try. So I went off on various lengthy diversions to find out, you know, what, inter what intersex was or, yeah. you know, um, reading philosophy papers, reading gender studies papers, terrible things, um, <laughs> you know, reading biology, bloody well reading, you know, articles about hormones and things. And really it was a year of sort of there's something wrong here. There's something badly wrong here and I can't articulate it. And then I just went down, I felt like I went down a rabbit hole because I suddenly realized that they meant it. They weren't just saying there are people who are male, but, you know, it's hard for them to move through the world like that. They need to move through the world as female. 
of course they're not actually female because that's not possible but you know we all know what it means to inhabit a social role mm. they were saying now oh, this person's female mm. i was like no they're not you yeah. can't possibly do that it turned out they did mean it so yeah. that was a long answer but basically it was the central black hole of this circular definition it had a sucking effect and it just drew me towards it and bothered me so much i couldn't okay. get to life. so that that aspect of the the truth belonging in the assertion of mm. the truth or the fact uh, the 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 truth of the fact belongs to the assertion of the truth of the fact yeah, so it's circular. I mean, it's not just that it's recursive, because some definitions are recursive. It's that it, it has no base whatsoever. Yeah. Well, I would. Doesn't it have the base of the assertion itself of the of the ratification of the assertion? I mean, and because the psychological impact. This is the ultimate question I want to get to. What is the psychological and the sociological impact of basing reality on the assertion on, on such a, a circular definition? Which I, I do think it, it ultimately has the power because because it is asserted and and then it and then it starts to be policed so that a community can act as though it is true that uh, a trans woman is a woman so i think the thing is if you if you were to start by saying you know i do actually know what a woman is it's an adult human female and i know what a man is but i accept that there are a few people who really don't feel comfortable in that and those few people can move that would be one thing that's where we were yeah. But now you're not allowed to say that anymore. It really is just this bare assertion. And it's an assertion with no nothing behind it. Like mm. it's saying, I am a woman because I feel like a woman. And by the way, it's impossible to define woman. Mm-hmm. So now you're completely unable to answer anything like, well, you know, this bloke has walked in off the street and, um, you know, he just insists that this is a female penis and, you know, this person has chopped up and murdered his, you know, other way around, murdered and chopped up his girlfriend and now he's in a hot top security prison and he says he's a woman. You have no answer to them. You can't say, oh, come on, you're not. Yeah. Because I don't know what a woman is. I'm not allowed to say I can define a woman. And anyway, as soon as you say you are, you are. Okay, and that, and then you you go into all these non-binary identities and so on, and it's yeah. it's it's like in maths if you make one mistake, mm. like if you make one untrue statement, the whole proof is, you know, doesn't stand, and if you allow one falsehood, it doesn't matter what it is, like zero equals one, you can prove anything. I mean, not prove really, not really prove, but argue to the point of anything you like. Okay, so once you've introduced one piece of nonsense into legislation, it all falls apart. It's a yeah. universal acid. It, it unravels the entire, I guess, yeah. language. Yeah, everything to do with who's mm. male and female. And and you find yourself in these bizarre assertions. And that's also, I think, why we end up on the stereotypes. So that was the other reason that I got really quite infuriated by this. And I found that professional women tend to find this the most irritating bit when I show them teaching materials. You know, when I show them the things that kids are being told. So... If you aren't willing to say that what makes you a boy or a girl is your body and you say to little kids like 10 year olds or 12 year olds, you know, it's how you feel. Well, I mean, how do they know how they feel? For God's sake, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So what the, what you then end up doing is saying, oh, girls are these sorts of people and boys are these sorts of people. And then you end up showing them things about stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And you've got these things like the mermaid spectrum of, you know, on this side, we've got the people who giggle a lot and wear a lot of makeup. And on this side, we've got the people who like playing with trucks and are actually quite rational. Yeah. And children are quite literally encouraged to look at themselves on this spectrum and say, oh, well, I'm on that side or I'm on that side. And I mean, this is infuriating if you're a, a woman who 
well, just anybody actually, but if you're a woman who cares about rationality and so on, I don't think that makes me more masculine or more male or more a man or any of those things. I'm just a very rational woman, that's all. And I'm really fascinated by your angle into, like, with the mathematical, uh, mm. just the straight logical um, tact. Is that what you're going to build your argument? Are you even building an argument? Or are you just, uh, are you, right now, are you just exploring the data and trying to see the causes and the effects of, of that one statement? Yeah. And what made that one statement it, yeah. so, so powerful? So... The question I want to answer in the book is how did we get here? And I mean, also, where do we go? Like, where does this bring us? But it's the question people ask me. And then they say, like, is it really because the drug companies want to then sell drugs? You know, I don't think it is. I don't think that helps, by the way, because I think it makes for a lobby. I don't think that's what got us here, though. I don't think there was some sort of conspiracy that said, let's confuse everybody about what sex they are or anything like that. But now we've got people in whose interests it is yeah. to lobby in particular okay. in America, you know. So, I mean, it's not a short story, is it, how we got here, but it seems, you know, from what I've read and from people you've talked to, I think you have talked to people who say similar things, that there are a significant, small but significant number of male human beings who have always felt very, very, very strongly that they are women. And I started reading the autobiographies of the early trans women, you know, Lily Elba, the Danish girl and um, April Ashley, and they talk about the woman inside and they talk about how they wished, you know, they, the woman inside could come out and she would, they would be real. The, re, the woman would be real and the man would be dead. They don't mm. mean I want to live as a woman. They think there is a woman there. And, I mean, if you fast forward to the 1980s, you get to Ray Blanchard, who has some you know, quite significant theories as to why this might be. And it isn't because there is a woman inside. You know, for some men, it's because they're highly effeminate gay men. And for some men, it's because it's a variant of sexuality, as Debbie Hayton talks about so openly. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about that variant sexuality is that part of the sexuality is having everyone validate it. So it's no fun to say, I want to play at being a woman. I want to pretend to be a woman or I want to act as if I am a woman. This woman feels very real. And other people have to go along with that. Yeah. And that's why people like that, even to themselves, would prefer to believe that it's because there's a woman inside. And that's the gender identity. That's your gender identity, that woman inside. Mm -hmm. And then everybody has to have one of them because it's not just that you're a weirdo. So we all have to have gender identities, but other people's match and they're lucky and they're the cisgender ones and some mm. unfortunates don't have them match. But actually this was innate as well, by the way. And if it was innate, that means children have to have them. But a totally separate body of work has shown that actually we don't really have transgender children. We have just some children with gender dysphoria, but most of them just grow up gay. Yeah. And yet those children must be seen as trans to validate this notion that we all come with a gender identity and for some of us it doesn't match. So that's why we're transitioning children. It's to prop up an idea that some adults want. And so that's how I think we got here. There's a, it might be a tired metaphor, but there's an aspect of, of this ideology that, that's very religious. That, and yes. by that, I mean, it's faith-based yes. and it gives rise to classical, uh, immature slash, uh, toxic religious, um, behaviors such as zealotry and, yeah. uh, the kind of, uh, 
finding a heretic and shunning them, witch burning, all these different things. It, it lines very much up, at least in the, my Western conception of what a religion is. There, I don't know if that's useful for you, but what is it about... It seems like there's this entire system of, of thought that includes belief, that includes a behavior, and it, it does go down to that concept of validation because it's not enough for me to be a, a woman even trapped in the man's body. I need everybody else to, to see right. me as a woman. And even ignore, even in a, a perverse way with those pictures that are popping up more and more of the clearly masculine men mm. saying that they're women, mm. like, like they're, they even want you to, to struggle you know, mm. they, they want you to, to... Oh, it's an assertion of power at that stage. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and and so then why do other people go along with it? Well, I think a lot of people don't actually realise that it is an assertion, that the assertions that are being made are supposed to be fact. They still think that they're just meant to be being asked to be kind. Yeah, like a legal uh, fiction. Yeah, and you know, why would you not? Because these are very suffering people and it doesn't actually have effect on anybody and so on. They don't think through... That, you know, this is not like citizenship, you know, I mean, I don't know what your citizenship is and I don't need to know unless I want to employ you or something. It's just not something, it's a relationship between you and a government, you know, but your sex or whether you're a man or a woman is something that does actually impact on the people around you Mm -hmm. because we do have sex-based spaces and services and so on. And we have them for, in some cases, very good reasons. So if, if a male can get into a a women's space, then no woman can have a female-only space. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's something that impacts on other people. So why is it so cult-like? I mean, the thing is, the assertions are ludicrous, like completely ludicrous on their face. You know, if we hadn't had the last 10 years and if this we hadn't produced what we have produced in universities over the last 25 years, nobody would be giving this the time of day. I mean, it's as insane as, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity. I was brought up Catholic, so all my examples are from Catholicism, you know, that this thing is both three and one. Things can't be both three and one. Nonsense. But, you know, it's part of your religion. So actually the matter it is, the more of an effort of faith and the more it shows that you're part of this group. Because it's no good, you know, just believing in some little thing to prove that you're part of a group. It has to be some enormous leap of faith, like that males can be women. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to do anything. They just assert it and it happens. I mean, that's really how you show that you're part of a group. Making an assertion of that. And because it's so mad, you mustn't let other people argue. So one of the most noticeable things has been the way that anyone who steps even the tiniest bit out of line, it's as if you're a heretic. That is the word I'd use. So people sometimes say to me, well, why can you not just be nicer about it? I'm actually not not nice at all. I never say anything horrible. I never insult anyone. I never use rude words. I don't misgender people. I don't do any of those things. And they think that I'm being horrendous because they hear this hysterical reaction. Well, I mean, I'm only saying things that everybody said 10 years ago. Mm. So so they have to be very hysterical to try to stop people from speaking. It's rather like, um, have you come across the, uh, the expression false consensus? So false consensus is when everybody thinks that everybody else thinks something, but actually none of them think it. Mm. So it's what happened, say, towards the end of the Soviet Union, where everybody thought everybody else wanted it to keep keep going. And then the first thing, the first few people speak and everybody goes, oh, okay, right. And then suddenly it's over. So that's why you have to police the people who dare to say anything at all. You have to threaten them with loss of jobs. You have to, you know, call them Nazis. You have to get them kicked off Twitter. You have to harass them, dox them, whatever, because the cost has to be very high to stop people from saying something that's just very ordinary. Mm -hmm. 
Otherwise, they'll say it, and then everyone will go, yeah, that's what I think too. <laughs> but at the same time, this is being enshrined or at least accepted or promulgated by, at least in the UK, the police force and yeah. the, the law. Yeah. Why I mean, the law gone further in most of America. What, what, what do you think the susceptibility of, of the law is to this? Is it, is it a value yeah. base that the law, like, is it based on some sort of liberalism where... I think We're it's a trying false to liberalism. Okay. Yeah, to trying to extend rights. It's definitely seen as the next gay marriage. I mean, I know that's how I saw it before I started to think about it. You know, I just thought there are these very oppressed groups, they're very tiny, so they're the next one that we work towards giving rights to. And I know that a lot of politicians think that because, you know, it's not that I talk to them and report on this directly myself, it's that I know people who do. So a friend who's in the lobby, like who covers Westminster, says, you know, he's talked to really a lot of a lot of MPs, and they start by, oh, yes, you know, Stonewall says this is the next rights group. That makes sense. We sorted out gay marriage. And the thing is, the Conservatives were very late to gay marriage, and they feel very bad about it, and likewise the police. You know, they're very homophobic for a long time, and they don't want to make the same mistake again. And um, it takes a long time after an organisation with a good name goes bad for everyone to realise it. So Stonewall is still trading on a very good name from the days when the British state was very homophobic and there were really horrendously discriminatory laws and Stonewall was the group that overturned them. People still think that Stonewall's a good thing. Yeah. So, that, that, you know, that's, that's they assume a, if Stonewall says it, it must be right. That, I think that that is a really good, and it's been brought up before, but I just want to put that into words, is that the, the conservative side of society, I guess, is delayed it's like it's vulnerable at this moment because it had been wrong or yeah. society went in a direction, a different direction yeah. than conservatives had wanted. Um, yeah. And so, and so they think, you know, young people like this or. Yeah. Yeah. It, and, but and, it also and I highlights say, the necessity for a strong conservative party or for yes, a conserv yes. conservatism, conservatism as, as a restraint in change or as something that, yeah. that holds us back from wild or at change, least right? makes us think through things okay so i'm good friends with simon fanshaw at this point who was one of the founders of stonewall i say good friends i mean the way that we are good friends these days we know each other on social media i don't know him so well in person but i love him dearly and it took them really a long time like 20 years to get various discriminatory laws taken off the books and in that time he talks to people like rabbis he talked to conservative christians he talked to conservative you know um uh, muslims he didn't he talked to um you know just conservative people who thought that he was a pervert and he just talked to them but the result was the laws were very good so when gay marriage was brought in it had been thought through it had been examined it had been argued against there has been no argument against gender self-ID, none at all from anybody. You're not allowed to say anything. So the results of the laws have been terrible. They haven't been tested in any way. Okay. And I must say, I do think that there is also the fact that the people, this harms are women and women are not the people who have power in society. A lot of men, it turns out, don't actually know why women might like to have spaces that males aren't allowed into. And yeah. they're not very interested in hearing about it. And so they, um, they just think it's unimportant. Mm. I sometimes call it the... Um, the supporting actress syndrome, like a lot of men see women as supporting actresses in the world and they think that we're supporting actresses in our own lives too. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, um, this barrister here called Jolian Maugham who became quite famous for opposing Brexit, but he's quite a trans rights activist as well. It's like his secondary, um, his secondary fun thing on social media. And um, 
he tweeted out that story, that extraordinary story about this male rugby player who was playing in the women's team, this enormous human being. And this story said, you know, this rugby player folds them like deck chairs and broke the coach's ankle in a touch game in training. And, and he tweeted this out saying something like, you know, what a heartwarming story of friendship and love and happiness or something like that. <laughs> and I mean, there's literally, you know, 21 women being flattened as this enormous human being, you know, rampages around the pitch. Yeah. So I asked him, you know, why did you not see the women? Did you not see the women on the pitch? You know, why do you not see the females? And I asked him several times, and then, of course, I was blocked. He was on a blocking spree at the time. But I still want to know, why did he not see the females? So people see the trans woman and they think, this is amazing, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a transformation story, it's a rebirth, it's somebody who's been through a great deal and reinvented themselves. And they don't think, how does that feel for the people around them, in particular the people who must make space for them, you know, on a sports team, in a political party, in a position, just in changing rooms, forever. Do you have any thoughts on this, and this is a phenomenon, I don't want to, I want to apologize beforehand for maybe sounding more rude than I mean it, but it seems uh -huh. like there's a number of women who are very happy to yeah. carry water for trans Absolutely. Women. In fact, the group who are most positive about the idea that what makes you a woman is saying you're a woman are young women. Yeah. That's the demographic that's most, you know, it, it, the most, most I, for it. So I, just, I just witnessed that this weekend at this event watching yeah, me too, the... With these protesters. Yeah, with the protesters and the, the, protester, the, the female protesters. It's like they're really embodying yeah. the, the woman as a secondary role. They yeah, really I feel mean, like their place is to serve men, to becoming this, women. This, this male human being, yeah. So I don't know, do they see themselves in a secondary role? I think that they're painfully naive a lot of the time. They don't realise to what extent that's what they're doing, that they're propping up somebody else's narrative. But I think, you know, from the vantage point of extreme old age, I can tell you that... <laughs> Get out of town. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, women's lives are more um, episodic in chapters than men's are. So this is one of the reasons, by the way, that I said that I think the coverage of women and women's issues is so poor, is that, you know, a woman who hasn't had children and a woman who has had children, they're very much more different from each other than men who have or haven't had children. You know, a woman who's a single parent is much more different from one who's married if you compare that to two men, then we have menopause, pre and post menopause. There's no gap. So, I mean, we're at least six different groups compared with men who are you know, much more similar or on a spectrum, famous spectrum. So there's an innate and then definitely a societally amplified ageism in misogyny. So when, when we look at women, you know, women who are post menopause are really um, just ended in their usefulness. And this is horrifying and terrifying for young women. Young women know that what makes them valuable in society is their looks, their fertility, their usefulness to men, their attractiveness to men. They know very well that a woman, and they're going to be one of these women if they live long enough. Older women are not that, and that's horrifying and terrifying. And you don't want to think that you're going to turn into that older woman. You don't want to think any of that. You want to ally yourself with men while you still can. And you don't want to listen to older women and think that they maybe have some wisdom that you don't have or some experiences that you don't have. And you also don't want to believe the world is going to be as shit as you'll realize that it will be as soon as you have kids. So you like to think in your 20s, you know, that they're just complaining and you'll do it right. It's all been fixed. The world's fine. And the women get radicalized in their 30s when they have kids and they realize that none of it was fixed. The maternity leave is still shit. They still get put on the mommy track at work. 
they still get people uninterested in them. They're careening towards 40, you mm. know. I mean, they, they sometimes say that a lot of the women who are in these gender wars, whatever we want to call it, were radicalised on mum's net. And I wasn't exactly radicalised on mum's net, but I would have been if I'd been there. You know? mm. So so those young women, they just don't know what's coming. Okay. And they will do. Yeah. I, this is a... Of course, they think I'm being very condescending saying all of that. Well, of course. <laughs> I, I wonder if one of the fixes uh, is a reconception of what it is to be a female uh, writ large. Like, like just a, I, I keep on going back to a mythological framework. Why don't we have uh, respect for mothers? Why don't we have a positive view or positive stories of what it is to be postmenopausal? Like, what is it to be a woman? And 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 this is one weakness if i'm if i may be so bold in the feminist narrative is that it it centers the oppression it centers the misogyny and it doesn't yeah. do enough to really boost up like the positive aspect and, and really showing the empowered female is something other than a superhero with tits bolted on, right? Yeah, so so I think there's just different strands of feminine, uh, feminism. I mean, that's very, very true of the sort of lib femme empowered, you know, that's very empowering to take your clothes off and, you know, twirl around at a pole at bloody Super Bowl type thing, you know, <laughs> or, you know, sex work is empowering or whatever, you know. I don't want to even go down that line, but I mean, if you're at this event at UCL on Saturday and you see 900 women, of various ages there were very young women there a lot of older ones that was empowering that was positive that was about what women's lives can be it's about who we are yeah. i mean that picture of leanne just you know yeah it's like wow i mean i'm in love and i'm straight you know <laughs> <laughs> so i do think there is there is that and that's scary of course you know one of your other questions was how you know why is the vitriol so bad partly because this is quite scary to a lot of people it's scary women just go having it no more taking no more of this thank you very much yeah we aren't meant to do that you know we're meant to say yes okay fine okay. of course take my changing room and you come you're suffering and so a reconsider a reconceptualization of what it would be to be female so i think we're doing that yeah. but i think we're doing it outside university gender, gender studies departments so if I, yeah if, if i could say what i think this for me I see this as part of a bigger thing that's happening where a lot of institutions are failing. And, you know, I see this with Brexit, I see it with Trump, I see it with Putin, I see it with Orban, with um, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, that there's, it, like, you could call it populism and it's a bit different in each place. But one of the things that has happened is that too many of the channels between ordinary people and their concerns and their interests and what you might call the elite, those channels that we would normally call civil society, those channels have kind of become co-opted and they're part of the elite now too, and they aren't working anymore. Yeah. And with Brexit, you know, for quite a while, you weren't able to say there are too many immigrants in this country. I'm not saying I think there are too many immigrants. I'm one of them. What I mean is that was verboten. And 10 years later, 15 years later, we saw the Brexit vote because nobody could say it. So where yeah. were the channels that were feeding up to the elite saying people are worried about this, people are worried about this, you're actually going to have to address it, you're actually going to make the argument. And then it burst out. And so with the gender wars, so who's got co-opted? All the, you know, if you, it's the equivalent of the ACLU and the HRC and GLAAD, here it's Stonewall, you know, the societies like Forces Society, these are part of the establishment now yeah. 
they get their money from government. They make the money that they don't get from government by training organisations to be diverse, and that's a government thing. They're not listening to the fact that actual people are thinking about something quite different. They don't even hear it. So I think something similar will happen. There'll be an up uprising. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing that with the foundation of organisations like Fair Play for Women, uh, Women's Place UK, LGB Alliance. You know, these are scrappy little organisations run on a shoestring that are replacing organisations that already exist, that are just not doing their job. They've just become co-opted. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite exciting to be there to see it happen. I was speaking to a reporter about uh, about their publication, and their publication was the underdog, the scrappy underdog yeah. that is now turned around and is policing discourse and is yeah. is no longer a, a allowing controversial yeah. viewpoints. Like the most yeah. controversial organizations are now the ones who are policing what yeah. you can and cannot say. And so and you this have like these other journalism. Yeah. You know, journalism was meant to be one of those channels that linked the concerns of ordinary people and the elite. Like as a journalist, you were somebody who took your notebook and went anywhere and listened to anyone, you know. And when I think about what I did in Brazil, like, you know, I interviewed the president, I went into prisons, I went into favelas, I went up in the, you know, the, in the Amazon region. And, you know, you just you just move around with your notebook. And now when I write about this subject, other journalists will say things to me like, um, like one journalist sent me an email and said, um, I think you should leave this bit out. It's, it's unpalatable. That word is unpalatable. And I replied saying, that's precisely why it should be in. I mean, aren't we the people who are meant to say the unpalatable things? Mm-hmm. But too many journalists think, no, we're not. Okay. That we're about, you know, promoting a, just a, an uplifting narrative or... A narrative, really, of any sort. So, like you were saying earlier, is journalism, the way that it's changed and the way that it is now failing to do its job, is it not so much that there was some sort of co-option, a centralized plan to make it function better, but that something from like the attitude or maybe schools or education or Mm. the zeitgeist caused individual journalists on a mass scale to begin to fail to do their jobs or to police their language or to know. So I suppose, I suppose the first reason in journalism is just lack of money, isn't it? I mean, the, the money that's gone out of the, the business is extraordinary. So everybody's fighting to survive. And where was the money coming before it left? Oh, well, just, you know, subscriptions and okay, so ads and so on. So it was just a it was just a more lucrative proposition. So you could afford to be riskier. You could afford to do proper reporting. So now what you've got is you've got a load of journalism. You know, people writing five articles a day or putting out opinion pieces that required no expense and no time and no expertise and so on but also it's become a graduate profession at usently i mean and now it's mostly graduates and it's mostly people who've gone through departments for the last 30 years have been teaching certain sorts of things and so it's turned out a much more um you know polite um ideologically similar uh elite and then the money thing, I think, also feeds in and that it's hard to go into journalism now unless you're actually quite well off, like unless your parents are subbing you. Mm. So you're not somebody you're not somebody who has any visceral understanding of large swathes of life. You're somebody who can pontificate. Like most journalists are a bit pontificating now, you know, yeah. a bit, a bit finger wagging. The whole thing's gone very finger wagging. Mm-hmm. And and then you look at the people who you know, set themselves up in their home studio and pick a subject and get to know a lot about it and interview 50 different people on it and get a, you know, a specific following. And yeah, that's where journalism is now, actually. Like there are still, of course, you know, good publications, but fewer and fewer of them. 
mm-hmm. and uh, they're safer and safer and more worried about polarization and more worried about offending people and so on. And then, you know, off there, there's people who are doing their thing and getting large followings and setting up Patreons and so on. And getting slandered by the uh, the uh, establishment elite journalists. <laughs> yeah, but screw it, you know, I mean. Yeah. So you brought up narrative yeah. What do you see the proper and the improper function of narrative in journalism and, and reporting on a story? And let's just say with you going in and conceptualizing, telling, writing a book about mm. this topic, is there not a narrative structure? And then how of do you course, ethically yes. navigate that between honesty, the facts, and then putting it together in this kind of synthetic manner that impacts yeah. the audience and allows them to enter into it? engage with it and then leave with a different point of view? I suppose I have two answers to that. And one is, why is this different from anything else? I mean, this is the first subject that anyone has felt that I shouldn't write. It's the Mm. first time someone has said, you can't write this because you're cis, you can't write this because you're straight. Um, I mean, I'm not American, so therefore nobody has ever said to me yet, you can't do that because you're not black. Um, Because it's just not the same anywhere outside America. and I mean, you know, again, nobody said you can't write about Brazil because you're not Brazilian. You can't write about, you know, someone living in a favela because you're a rich white foreigner. Nobody said that. And yet I was a rich white foreigner, you know. So, by the way, rich compared with Brazilians, I just have to say. Brilliant <laughs> Brazilians in favelas. Um, and now I'm not meant to speak. Now this is meant to be different than everything in, in every other subject. There's only someone who has precisely that lived experience is allowed to write about this. Well, screw that. I'm a journalist. I can write about anything. I'm going to go in. I'm going to ask people. I'm going to do my best good faith attempt. And I'm going to put together the best story I can. And I'm going to make it grabby. And I'm going to try and tell a story. And people can disagree with me. Then they can go and bloody well write their own book, thanks. Yeah. Nobody yeah. has ever told me in any other subject. Mm. That I shouldn't do this. Of course, I'm going to try and make it as interesting as I can. Of course, I'm going to try and tell a story, and it's not going to be the whole story. It's going to be my story. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a similar uh, situation. I mean, I came out of Evergreen after four and a half years of the college that I attended. Yeah, I know. I've seen some of, of your documentaries. Like, <laughs> watching people say that the white male is already dead. Yeah. Like I'm basically, I'm already the dead white male. Yeah. So. Yeah, still running the world, by the way, so it's nonsense. Still running the world, so... Not you personally, but... (laughs) Maybe personally. Maybe. (laughs) Oh, that would be great. I think you'd do a better job. (laughs) (laughs) But I I guess, like, that... that, 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 Nothing inspires me more than being told what I can and cannot say. So that's... that's, See, somebody who doesn't feel like that shouldn't be a journalist. I'm quite shocked. I'm really quite shocked at... what passes for journalism. I know I sound like, you know, again, you know, the ancient woman sort of <laughs> fulminating about all the younger people. I can't believe the journalists aren't all over this. Like you're meant to have a bullshit detector as a journalism journalist. If somebody tells you something that's just patent nonsense, you know, you should be prodding, prodding, prodding. You should be asking smarmy questions. You should be asking follow-up questions. You should be pushing, you know, and mm-hmm. all those things that journalists used to say to themselves, like, um, you know, it, it isn't, you know, it isn't news unless someone somewhere doesn't want you to print it and, you know, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted and, mm. you know, and then now we've got people saying, oh, that's a bit unpalatable. It's just extraordinary to me. What do you think your job is? Are you in bloody PR? Mm. Well, it's the same, that same basic contingent is the ones that are saying we need uncomfortable conversations constantly. Oh, yeah. They want Which just means that we want you to be uncomfortable because we're going to present you with 
some information that's not going to make sense, you're going to feel uncomfortable and we're going to force you to accept yeah, it. The thing is, I don't feel uncomfortable. They can't make me feel uncomfortable. I'm not, I, don't, I can't be made uncomfortable. Mm. So, you know, they can try all they like. It's not going to work. Um, it's, it's like the, um, you know, the meanings of things like diversity. It's only certain things that are diversity. Mm. I mean, I'm not the first person who's made that observation. But, you know, they want, they want to have a broad conversation. They want to amplify voices that aren't heard or things. And then, you know, along you come and you're a detransitioner. Or along you come and you're a trans widow, they do not want to know. That's they didn't mean that sort of, mm. you know, unamplified voice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, how are you? Are you are you conceiving of the interviews as a bunch of different classes that you're going to engage with? Is it somewhat similar to what I've been doing uh, in the way that you're going to try to get a, a variety of views, or is there um, one central? Do you know, do you know what on this one? This is going to sound just incredibly arrogant, but I'll go for it anyway. I'm going to say what I think is just right. I'm not attempting to give okay. a bunch of viewpoints Fair or a bunch of voices. Okay. I'm telling my story, how okay. I see this happened. Obviously, I'm giving evidence along the way. Yeah. I'm citing the people that I got this from. But I'm not going to go, you know, well, perhaps gender identity is very important and sex is a spectrum. Or perhaps sex is binary and gender identity is you know, nonsense that was cooked up somewhere by Judith Butler. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell the story I want to tell. Okay. And then people can disagree with it if they want. Do you see political theories operating within this? And will you be touching on that? Like, is this a left-right issue? Is this the liberalism uh, gone mm. mad? Uh, uh, communism, a uh, cultural Marxism kind of thing going on? Do, do you have any inclinations? Wow. That's a really good question. Or even sociological, not so much political. I mean, it so clearly straddles the traditional right-left lines, and it so clearly engages in classical liberalism, which appears to be dead as far as I can see, because I'm just astonished at the people who aren't just standing up for this on free speech grounds. Mm -hmm. Like, it's amazing that, for example, the new atheists aren't up in arms about this. Like, it's so obviously got cultish elements. It's so obviously about, you know, gendered souls and not about bodies and not about material reality. It so obviously produces nonsense. They should have been all over it. Why are they not all over it? Yeah. Like, why has somebody like Richard Dawkins or, Sam, you know, Sam Harris not said things about this? I, I have my theories, but, yeah. you know, it's just, it just, I've lost so much respect for so many people doing this work. Huh. So many people, you know, that I thought cared about rationality, cared about free speech, cared about logic, cared about women's rights. Turns out that was all bullshit for a lot of them. Could that be because you're focusing on it and it's still uh, not really a big issue for other people? Because that's something I wonder about myself because I'm so mm. invested in mm. this as a mm. story. Is this, am I ma over magnifying this? Is this not really a big issue? And then no, you see a, a, a whole bunch of young women. Yeah. Who are sterilized. I know. I went to the detransitioners, um, the detransition network launch in Manchester in, I think it was late October. I just wrote about it for Standpoint magazine and um, it had a big impact on me. You know, you're sitting there in a room, there's eight young women, all of them lesbians, you know, some of them are sterile, had their, you know, uteruses removed and they were 20, 21. And now they're sitting there 23 and, mm. you know, broken voices and, they were lied to, lied to, lied to, a huge medical scandal. Mm. And I had a voice echoing through my head for weeks afterwards, just saying, they're sterilizing gay kids, they're sterilizing gay kids, they're sterilizing gay kids. And I don't know how many kids that is, but it's thousands for sure. And it might be tens of thousands. I don't know how many kids going, this is going to happen to. And I decided that the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing 
is I can't stop this, but I can hopefully play a part in shortening it. Mm-hmm. So there will be some number fewer of gay kids who are sterilized because of what I'm doing and writing. Mm-hmm. And that gives me a moral clarity and purpose in what I'm doing. And you know, if I ever think, could I have done something else? Could I have just dropped this? Because people have said, would you not just drop this? I mean, why? If somebody said to me, do you want this to be the issue that defines you? I'm like, well, yeah. fine. Yeah. They're huh. sterilizing gay kids. Why would yeah. I not? Huh. And and how do you see it changing? Do you do you see an inclination of like like when you play the game out, how it will start to change? Is mm. it just a, a mass movement? You, I guess you you hit on that before. It's it's some, suddenly just going to pop up. There is there is absolutely a resurgence of feminism on the basis of this, and it's gone further yes. in, a, in in the UK than other places. Okay. And that, I mean, that's it. there's some interesting reasons for that. Um, you know, one is that we don't have the political polarization that you have in America, at least not yet. So a woman doesn't have to decide between her abortion rights and, you know, her rights to define herself as a woman and not have men do the same. Okay. Whereas you do have to in America. And I can see why many women would just say, well, I simply can't vote for a party that would reduce my abortion rights. Okay. So we, we, we didn't have the polarization. That's one reason. Two, it's not our universities that went mad first. We just imported your madness. So it was a bit later. Um, three, we saw what was happening elsewhere so people could organise a bit earlier. Yeah. And um, it was a group of women really in the union movement who um, who were the first ones to get talking and organising. And they were just very lucky. They're very good. They're amazing yeah. women. Yeah. So it was a set of things worked in our favour and here there's been this resurgence of feminism. So that's one thing that will come out of it. But if we play it forward, I don't believe we will keep sterilising gay kids because I think that plays just unbelievably badly. I don't. I think you really have to be absolutely in the cult mindset to look at a 21-year-old who's saying, you know, I had an eating disorder, I'm autistic spectrum disorder, I was you know, self-hating lesbian, uh, they said to me I was probably a man, so I cut everything else out and off, and now I'm 21, and here I am with a receding hairline and a broken voice, and I'm sterile. And, and then to say to her, your fault you were stupid, you shouldn't have, you should be quiet because you're harming trans people. Like hardly anyone can do that. Mm-hmm. So most people, once they know that this is happening, they are not going to take that. What about the sports the, thing is the other one. Yeah, sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most people, I've shown people pictures of Rachel McKinnon on the podium or Hannah Mouncey on the pitch or, you know, these various other delightful <laughs> athletes. And, um, Everybody just laughs. It's the first thing they do. They, they, there's this horrified laugh at what they're seeing. They can't believe it. Yeah. So the, you know, so the more of those things, so this gross overreach yeah. is going to have a big effect. So for places that have already put gender self-ID into law, Canada, for example, bits of America, it's going to be very, very hard to unwind. But for places like Britain, where it's only in practice and not in law, well, oh, we, can just, okay. we can just fix up the practice. In certain respects, though, Britain has been on the avant-garde of enforcing, at least, like with the police yeah, departments. Yeah. And... So the police one is an interesting one. That's another one of these legacy issues. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I think Glynner might have mentioned wrong Steve. side of history kind of thing. We got to yeah, make that, that. But a very specific, a very specific one, which was the awful murder of a, a black teenager a couple of decades ago now, a chap yeah. called Stephen Lawrence, and the police took it totally unseriously. Like they didn't investigate properly and. A tabloid actually ended up publishing the names of the murderers um, or the alleged murderers. I can't even remember if they were tried. Uh, And then there was an investigation and the police was declared institutionally racist. 
And then there was a bunch of things that were done, and this is law now and practice, about hate, hate incidents. So the police have various practices, and these are things that they are meant to do, where they're meant to stop things escalating. They're, they're meant to take very seriously racial um, slurs, but now that's transphobic slurs as well. So when you see them going around and, you know, policing people's tweets and so on, that's actually a legacy of them having not investigated a black teenager's death properly mm-hmm. and not thinking through the people who did it at various points with good intentions, you know, how Orwellian it is to be trying to stop yeah. crime before they happen, and, <laughs> you know, stopping people from using bad words in case that escalates. And, yeah. and here we are, you know. Yeah. The, uh, not to mention the, the marginalization of the limerick. That's just, I mean, it's a good thing that we've got Harry Miller taking that case, you know. It's, we've got all these legal cases. Okay, so so it's going to be, that's going to be corrected, the overcorrection is going to be corrected through law. So, so I think are, so. Okay. So so there's a bunch of legal cases. Next year is going to see a lot of legal, or this year actually, sorry, we're 2020 now. Yeah. Uh, this year we'll see a lot of cases here in Britain. And one of the other things that Simon Fanshawe from Stonewall once said to me, I think he said it a lot of times, is um, even when we lost, we won. So when they were fighting for gay rights, they took a lot of cases, including some that went all the way to European higher courts. And sometimes they lost. But when you lose, if you win public opinion, the loss is actually very helpful. Mm. So Maya's case is a very good example of that. So this is this woman who said that the law should not change, that we should not bring in um, gender self-ID. And she was got rid of her employer, let, let her go because of that. Mm. I mean, really because of that. There's no question. There's no doubt about that. They even told her. And she went to an employment tribunal and that was just before Christmas and the employment tribunal ruled that her belief that the categories male and female are immutable and consequential is a belief that's not worthy of respect in a democratic society. That's much better than if she had won. Because if she had won, I've said this to her too, this isn't just me being mean. If she had won, people would have said, oh, you know, those women were complaining a lot. It kind of went a bit too far, but it was all sorted out in the courts. And now a judge has seriously said that if you say that male and female are real, immutable categories and that you really need to talk about that sometimes when you're talking about the female one's rights, you can be fired. Mm -hmm. That's horrifying. And that woke people up more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So she is appealing. But so these legal cases are very helpful. And sometimes when you lose, you win. Yeah. Hmm. That's not going to stand. It cannot be. We're not going to have it in law that you can let women go for saying, you know, he's male. I don't actually want him to shower with me <laughs> because that's what we are. That's what that's what Maya was talking about. She was saying we need to be able to say when a human being is male in some circumstances, for yeah. example, communal showers and work. Yeah. What do you think the future of journalism is? Oh, if you can divorce your own, uh, I guess, your own motivations from that, like what would you... Well, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm in a strange situation because I'm both inside and outside. I mean, I have this great job for a fantastic news organization and I love doing that and I think they're doing a fantastic job. But I've also had this experience of writing a lot of freelance work that I have found it hard to get published and that gets published in, you know, Quillette or um, Standpoint. Mm. And there's people like them and there's Unheard and there's a few other, you know, scrappy outfits with not much money and just doing really interesting things. And then sometimes not great quality control. But, you know, it's there and, it, you know, it really is giving you like three articles in Quillette about the wars in knitting. They were brilliant, you know, fantastic stuff. And then all these interesting bloggers and, you know, people like yourself doing podcasts and videos. And I just think, you know, where's the really interesting stuff? Well, you know, if I'm 
a middle-aged executive and I want to read one thing a week, I'll read The Economist. But if there's something I'm very interested in, you know, I think I'm going to be following particular podcasters. And, and, you know, if you're one person with a passion and the information drive, Mm -hmm. then you can make it work. Kind of an a la carte uh, media diet kind of thing. Like I I want to get really deep into that thing. There's somebody who has that niche. I mean, that's how I use my Twitter um, account is that I, you know, I follow the people I think most interesting. Mm. And by now there's probably sort of 30 or 40 people I follow who write on this or who do interesting threads. Mm. And it's it's a very personal mixture. You know, people write about employment law, Mm. some philosophers, some sports scientists, and it's completely tailored to this topic. And I very much doubt there's another person in the world who has a similar list of people they follow. Um, yeah. Do you have any uh, ideas about how that can be sustainable, like as far as like payment models, or do you think that the the crowdsourcing thing is the way to go? Do you think that that? I mean, I don't think it can necessarily provide a middle class um, no. lifestyle. No. But if if you're you know somebody like me who spent twenty years of my adult life just writing books that nobody's ever going to read and yeah. being completely <laughs> fine not making money, then. Any I think it can, it can, I mean, some people obviously do reasonably well yeah. um, with a Patreon and, yeah. you know, some people do fantastically well, a few people do incredibly well with that. Um, I mean, it's just so hard to see how you can have a full, full service news organization anymore that's making all its money from, I mean, we do, we are still doing that, but, you know, the media organization, the media world and the landscape is changing a lot. I hope we can still do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so many of them are subsidised. Or you know, if you look at the Guardian, one of the reasons the Guardian has been so terrible on this subject. I mean, this it is absolutely the newspaper that you know left wing and liberal women would have read always, and now they're turning away from it. Is because it's gone this um, uh, subscri- not non subscription model, and it's read everywhere. So specifically, it's read in bloody America. Okay. So you wretched Americans are the people who are ruining the Guardian <laughs> because you cannot, at all costs, democratic Americans cannot be put off. Okay. So they just can't write about the fact right. that we're seeing this flowering of materialist feminism here. Yeah, okay. They just yeah. didn't even mention it. Okay. So it has completely corrupted them, actually. Yeah, they've been captured by their audience then. Yeah, they've been captured hugely yeah. by their audience. Yeah. No, completely yeah. captured by yeah. their audience. That's hmm. really difficult to challenge um, American media. Uh, they've, they've come after independent media quite a bit, yeah. and uh, it's very obvious, you know, with yeah, just even election coverage from 2016, just the way that they treated or didn't treat Bernie Sanders and the way that they treated mm. Trump or only treated Trump for the entire election cycle. Yeah, your polarization is just so horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it looks so like every media, yeah, so, so every media organization has essentially said, you know, I've no chance with half of the American population, so I will just pander to the other half. Yeah. Okay. And I will give them what they expect to hear, and I will, you know, yeah. write. And it's a bit like what the parties do in the primaries of going further and further to the extremes to try yeah. to get the most committed voters. Well, that's kind of where we are, and it just ratchets. It gets worse and worse. I, mm. I really, I pray that we don't have anything similar here ever. Yeah. It's horrible to see. Do you see... And this was a question that was asked at the Wolf panel. Do you see the transgender discussion a place where left and right can come together? Um, or, or like even even the the ground, like it is a, a rebirth of feminism, uh, like like not even like a third wave, like as the 
as all these waves advance, mm. like, but like a return or a, I think of it as a materialist feminism, like okay. a, a feminism that's rooted in the materiality of okay. sexed bodies. Yeah. So like a rewriting of that narrative, do you think that this could be possibly the ground in a weird, strange way of, I don't think it is that strange. Coming together yeah. left and right coming together. I mean, I don't, I, and I, I predict nothing about coming together in America. I just don't <laughs> see how you're going to do it. It's just so horrendous. But if I think here, you know, I mean, I don't count myself as left wing. I think I'm very, I'm, I'm on the technocratic center. That's where I am. Yeah. But, you know, there are people I respect who are evangelical Christians who think of themselves as either left or right wing, because you can be in both camps with that, who care hugely about this issue. And the way that they'd express why they care about it is they'd say that it feels to them to be sacrilegious that a child might be told that they're born in the wrong body. Okay. Well, I'm an atheist, but I have an atheist version of that. Yeah. You know, I think it's such a terrible thing to do that it feels to me like a like a secular version of sacrilege that you would do that to a child. It's so such, I feel, yeah. yeah, I feel a very strong commonality with them. And it doesn't bother me that that comes from their religious impulse, because for me, it comes from something like, like a spiritual intellectual impulse. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's a secular sin to do that to a child. Yes. Yeah. And then there would be, you know, people who would regard themselves as really quite traditional people, and you know they would have different ideas than I would about the sex roles, and they might have different ideas about you know how you should bring up your children. But they're good people, and what they're worried about is child safeguarding. Well, I'm very worried about child safeguarding too. This drives a coach and horses through it. It's madness. Mm-hmm. And then there's people who are full blown. I have so many Marxist feminists friends now. I work at the Economist, and I know a bunch of Marxist lesbians. <laughs> and um, and for them, you know, I. I have a lot of points of agreement on this issue, whereas I think if we started to talk about the means of production or yeah. <laughs> something like that, very much we'd go very far. So, yes, it's absolutely an issue that you can come into okay. from many different directions and end having you know, really a range of commonalities. Okay. I don't think you can come in as a homophobe. I mean, I'm afraid in America some do. They dislike the whole trans narrative because they dislike anything that's non-normative. But I don't okay. know anyone like that. That most of the people I know at this point are gay. So okay, yeah. So it, it's almost like uh, I don't know if you know much about Jonathan Haidt and his uh, yeah. moral matrix about the. He brings up in one of his books uh, the common identity and common enemy, or common humanity yeah. politics and common yes. enemy politics. And there's a, there's an aspect of there's such a deep violation of reality of of uh, you know of, of the human being the developing human being that mm-hmm. can be the ground for, for a common, a commonality where we can start to rebuild a reality that's uh, robust enough for a number of different viewpoints to come together and, yes. and work together. Yes. And then perhaps find in that work, a similarity that they can respect each other while they disagree. Mm. And then we can start to rebuild that uh, discussion across. Uh, and you know, free speech used to be that thing. Okay. But we've lost we've lost the the norm of free speech. That has been one of the most underappreciated reasons why we are where we are now with this. In the UK, or I think it, I, I think everywhere, absolutely okay. everywhere. Yeah, I mean, America talks a good talk about free speech, but you know, you silence people worse than we do. Mm. I mean, look at look at these purity tests that you have to do if you want to try and get a job at University In of Berkeley. Berkeley. Yeah, Jesus. I mean, yeah. you know, this is not this is not free speech. This is compelled. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 a, it's a, a, a loyalty test. test. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that that could never have happened if people took free speech and freedom of belief seriously. Okay. So there are only a few people still standing up for that. I mean, one of them is not the ACLU. You know, as a woman that I saw said, <laughs> you know, they will take your 
tax-free dollars and then they will give it to your employer to sue you for saying that sex is real. So, you know, I mean, these organizations that still trade on a good name have abandoned, like ACLU is anti-free speech, Stonewall is homophobic, GLAD is homophobic. Mm. Human Rights Council doesn't seem to give a toss about people's human rights. It's just, mm. you know, yeah. I see this issue as an issue that has perverted so many organizations yeah. and people. It, it is weird. Like I noticed that with a number of different institutions where it's a very decadent phase of these institutions where yes. it's, it's now manned by people who are expending the accumulated authority and they're yes. not generating anything more. It's no, so short sighted because they're it's, it's from rags to rags in three generations. You know, it's like it's like yeah. the fortune, the self-made fortune. You know, I mean, I used to really admire the ACLU. And it's, it's another thing that you have to do in this field is you have to listen to what people say and then you have to look at what they do. So there's, a, there's this performative narrative of social justice and human rights and oppressed people and so on. And, you know, we have the Trans Day of Remembrance and we talk forever about the suicides of trans kids and the murder rate and so on. And, you know, all on terribly shoddy statistics. Like they're not, that's not none of that is based on anything. That's just this performative social justice narrative. And then over here, you look at what they're actually doing. And there are only two things that the trans rights activists are doing. And one of those is attempting to get as many children onto a pathway to sterilization as possible. And the other one is making it impossible for female people to have anything at all that they can say no entry to males. That's it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's actually where all the effort and money is going. This is just rah, rah, wave a flag. Jesus. Pretend this is social justice. <laughs> Well, I'm, well, I'm, I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. Am I? Children and uh, oppressing women. <laughs> the specifically, stopping women from saying no. I mean, did you see? I forget which um, town it was that had the vote a few months ago about whether um, girls in schools could keep boys, males, out of their changing room. Yeah. And there's this girl crying and saying, "Don't make me change after my swimming lesson." You know, the boys can come in and and there's these grown men cheering and clapping and saying, yeah, you know, mm. that's what. And there's the ACLU put money into that. They all put money into that. There's a lot of money from outside the state that went into that. That's the activism. Yeah. And um, so I think one of the reasons it's gone so far is that people are hearing the oppression narrative, but not seeing where the actual legislative effort okay. and, uh, and campaigning is really going. Okay. And and that's that that's my um, the thing that I'm probably going to get in trouble with the uh, my coverage of the Megan Murphy event is that there both the trans rights activists and the wolf activists are their narratives are both based on oppression and yeah. if you look at both groups it's actually the trans rights activists that are more pathetic because yeah. they're they're mentally ill they they're not even stable like like in so a I way that they're evoking even more pity so yeah. the the feminists. Narrative and and it's a it's a critique, a constructive critique. It's like, what are you offering young women? You can't mm, just offer very, them a, a life of pain and suffering, yeah, and and you yeah. have to teach them more than just every advance from a man is something that is demeaning mm. you. You have to give them the but tools. That's, that, that's very much the American, um, American, you know, oppression matrix thing. I mean, that's okay. absolutely the intersectionality bullshit yes. narrative. And I saw and, I saw the corruption yeah. in the wolf. And that once, started once something good. Up, like it, it started to all that oppression and privilege started to erode yeah, the, yeah. The, the motivation or the, the momentum of the group. Cause now they're just 
devolving. That it's such and, a and, you know, another thing that happens is that I think um, people there's a victimhood thing as well. Like that there's who was it? I forget who it was. Some American political theorist who talked about how we used to think that heroes were the best people, and that if you were you know, a loser, you were a failure. Yeah. And then that changed. And we understood that if you were, you know, oppressed, you, you know, you could be morally good. And now it's like the only morally good people are the oppressed ones. So you must find a way to be oppressed if you want to be a good person. Mm-hmm. You know, a black, a white person must find a way to say that they are something other than white. Otherwise, they're just forever a bad person, like forever apologizing. And, and you're in this, this um, Kafka trap where if you say, well, actually, I'm not currently right this second oppressing anybody else oh that's white fragility that's your denial there's nothing you can do or say you are just a permanent bad person Mm -hmm. so i think that's the sort of flavor of feminism you're talking about where it is impossible ever ever as a woman not to be oppressed you are just oppressed a man could not not be oppressing you it's terribly unattractive it's also not true and i mean i say this as someone who believes that there's a great deal of oppression of females okay all the time but i mean it's not like we can't we've improved we have improved so much yeah you know that was what's so lovely about this event in london at the weekend it was 50 years since the since a particular really important conference of the women's liberation movement and a lot of it was looking back at what we've achieved in 50 years or what those women had achieved then what's been achieved since how much more there is to go so it's part of the yeah. lifting up of women and lift, you know a movement yeah. towards making better lives yeah. for all women yeah, that's something that I saw at Evergreen um, was that they were so concerned with advancing the ball that they completely they 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 were constitutionally or unable to notice that they were more advanced than anybody else. Yeah, um, that they were doing more work and they were doing better than most average colleges with the yeah. categories that they. And, and it's so introverted and so boring. I mean, that's another mm. thing I would say about this whole gender thing. It's incredibly boring. I mean, of all the things that you could be doing with your day, yeah. work on your gender. Yeah. Oh, God, you know, go off, you know, cure bloody malaria. Yeah. You know, treat it's sick kids, teach people gay. to read, do a bit of knitting, for God's sake, anything, make something, sing, just yeah. pour some coffees for people. But this introverted, you know, working on yourself thing. Yeah. No. No. I mean, for example, a young woman I know in journalism, a really lovely young woman, said to me, Helen, do you feel bullied by how this has all gone? And I don't feel bullied. There are some very, you know, there are some very noisy people out there and they're trying to stop me from talking and they haven't succeeded, but I haven't been bullied. Mm. So everything bad is bullying and I'm somebody who's weak. I don't know. (laughs) Just it's not very helpful to me to think I'm so weak, is it? (laughs) It just doesn't make me any better at doing what I need to do. Mm-hmm. Do you see um, the possibility or do you see the actuality of uh, a mentorship uh, or a returning of mentorship within feminist or female, the female community or a need for that? I don't think that ever went anywhere. Okay. I, mean, I feel I stood on the shoulders of giant sisters that really didn't come out right, but you know what I mean? And I do everything I can to help younger women, younger men as well, by the way. I don't, yeah. I mean, I actually do run our mentoring scheme in The Economist, so... A what yeah. scheme? A mentoring. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you see that that's something that's that's needed or that can be boosted or that's just there? It's always a good thing to do. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I just think, you know, in feminist spaces, like what I think of as feminist spaces, I suspect that what you're imagining is something hor- horrible in comparison. But, you know, what I, I see not. in feminist spaces is, you know, women helping other women, yeah. women lifting up other women of every age. And it was lovely. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I want more of it in my life. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.